Hey everyone, this is Sam from Novel Discourse with a quick note about today's episode. You've probably heard me say this once before if you've been an avid listener, but this is one of those episodes that we recorded a little bit before we made some of those major audio upgrades. I say that for two reasons. One, I wanted to give you a heads up that it's still very clear to hear what we're saying, but at times either my audio or Andy's audio might go down or go up in volume. So I wanted to make you aware of that. Also, if you are not an avid listener, we wanted to kind of give you a heads up that this is not our typical audio quality and that in most of our future episodes, you will not hear such quality. Well, listen, we're really excited for you to join today. We've got a really cool episode about Remember the Titans. This is a lot of people's favorite sports film. We're going to talk about what makes it a great sports film, both from a structure standpoint as well as from character standpoint. But we're also going to talk about how Remember the Titans as a family movie or a movie intended for younger audience is able to thoughtfully address certain heavier issues such as race relations in our country and gives us important lessons to learn along the way. That's all coming up next here on Novel Discourse. Welcome to the Novel Discourse Podcast, where we discuss great stories and how they're told. I am Sam, he is Andy, and Andy, you've been on a little bit of a road trip, as I understand it. Yes, I'm very happy to be home. I just spent the last 10 days in Chicago, Illinois, with my newly pregnant wife. That's a lot to deal with uh, for both of us, and therefore, I am very happy to be back in Austin, Texas. Um, I don't know if I'm going to travel for a while. It was a lot. <laughs> a lot of... Uh, dealing with airlines and labor dude, on both ends, dude. And... on both ends. Yeah. The, the, we had to deal with the, the, the Southwest flight, uh, the pilot union strike on the way there. And then on the way back, we got delayed by a storm. And then we finally got on the plane after switching gates, which I don't know if anyone else has the same experience as I do, but every single time I've flown out to Chicago O'Hare, I've had to switch gates like right before the plane boards, they tell you me to run halfway across the known universe to a different gate. Got there, got on the plane, taxied, got out from the gate, and then they said they were waiting on some paperwork is all they told us. And we sat there for an hour and 45 minutes just sitting still. And then when they got their paperwork and then we got in line and we were 42nd in line to take off. And so a oh. flight that was supposed to take off at 7 and land in Austin at 10, uh, we took off at 11.30 and landed at 2.30. I wouldn't want to fly for a long time after that. I think I told you my last flight we had – it was a it was an eight hour flight and it was turbulence literally seven of those hours. Which oh, bro, that's a nightmare. I can deal with a little bit of turbulence, but having moderate turbulence for seven hours was was not fun. You know, turbulence what is what turb- makes you like super aware of like how close you are to death. Like you're suddenly very wa- aware of the fact that you're in a giant metal box that's only kept aloft by the speed at which it's hurtling through nothing, and you're just like, huh, physics. I don't yeah. know a lot about that. Uh, shit. It's not, you know, if a tire blows out, you're, you're just like, well, I'll, we'll screech to a stop. But if a, if a, you know, a wing blows off somehow, which I don't think that's ever happened, but if it does, you're, you don't have you're a lot dead. of options after that. Well, it's like, they talk about it in a, who knows, maybe future episode fight club where they talk about how, like, when you look at like the safety guide on an airplane, it's like all these smiling people putting on like life vests and all this shit. It's like, dude, 
you're dead. <laughs> you are, there ain't no, there ain't no tumbling from 35,000 feet and putting on a life vest and floating around in the ocean, dude. You, you die. If you're lucky, you die in the crash and you hope you don't get eaten by sharks, drown or burn up in a jet fuel fire. So yeah, pretty terrifying. A very somber it. and sad start to this episode. Well, I'm pretty anti-flight at this point. So <laughs> this is, uh, <laughs> well, you know, uh, what was it turbulent? was this film we're about to talk about. That is Remember the Titans, which I'm going to make a statement. I'm going to make a bold statement. Um, top three sports film of all time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, the To me, the only sports movie better than this is Field of Dreams. Uh, and I don't even know if you'd count that as a sports movie. They don't really like play sports in that movie. It's just like sports oriented. As far as movies where they play sports in the movie, this is the best sports movie there is, in my opinion. Uh, and there's not a ton of sports play. Like, there is sports play in this movie, but I feel like a lot of the interactions around the sports are locker room, sideline conversations, things like that. The community. When play, yeah. Right. When they play sports in this movie, I do have to say, pretty unrealistic. Bro, the, the, the thing that always gets me in this movie is when they show guys sprinting, they look, like, so unathletic. Like, whenever they're running, like, because everyone in this the offense they run in this movie is some like straight up boomer, three yards in a cloud of dust. I think they run like the Veer or something. It's, it's like Daryl like Royal offense, but it's like all running offense. It's all like fullback lead blocker out to the right or left, and the running back running. And whenever they show the guys sprinting, they're doing this weird like arm pumping, high knee running that always makes me giggle. But it's such an awesome movie that I totally forgive it. Yeah, what's the famous clip that's been going around? I think it's from was it uh the all-american it's one of those shows that's come out on, like the, the CW. are you talking about the one where the quarterback is like throwing the ball off screen and it's like the yes. worst wind up and release in the he history of time wrist. yeah he does he literally like that ball literally goes like eight and a half feet like there's no way it goes any farther than that it maybe clears the camera like <laughs> if you if you haven't seen that clip uh you can maybe just search it but not before liking and subscribing to this video uh but i will tell you what there's some pretty bad, I guess you could say, what do you want to call it, like sports cinematography in this in this film, uh, which we'll we'll get into that. But this is a writing podcast, so we'll we'll give this movie its credence. I will say this, well written, but oh, yeah. when you talk about the writing for this film, one one of the things I found interesting is this is based on a true story. Cool. But when I think of based on a true story, oftentimes I think, okay, well the source material has kind of been handed to them, and therefore that takes out a lot of the creativity. But if you go back and look at what actually happened in this story versus what the movie is about, they are almost nothing alike. I don't know. Did you get a really? chance to dive into the... I didn't. The I, I, I deliberately didn't drive, dive into that side of things because I kind of loved the... Uh, I really liked the dynamic we had on the last episode where like you knew more about the background of Legally Blonde than I did. And I kind of wanted this a similar learning experience from this podcast. Okay. So I could learn along with our so listeners. Let me, let me learn you. Uh, Please so do. I'm writing down some of these crazy facts. I think one of the, the most interesting facts that kind of immediately takes away the entire plot was that they were the last school in their district to get desegregated. Yeah. Oh, so they were just like wild racist. Like, well, they were, I, the, hold, they were the holdouts. Like, they were the holdouts to. Yeah. Or, or, or I think a, another way to look at it is the entire movie is them going against all white teams with all white officiating crews and kind of going against 
having to get over that hurdle to stay undefeated when in reality they were going against other desegregated schools the whole time. And it was like, this movie is kind of about this one community overcoming its own racism and prejudice to like stand united against the racism and prejudice of the surrounding, you know, state of Virginia effectively, like the capital of the Confederacy. And it sounds like the reality is just like, some people trying to, to, to get over their own fucking racism long enough to not get their ass kicked at football. Cause I'm sure desegregated schools beat the dog shit out of all white schools a lot at the time. Like deciding, yeah, so, deciding based on like a totally arbitrary racial line that you're going to cut off half the talent in your town from being on your football team is a really easy way to lose. I would think like, well, just, yeah, well you're, you're effectively, if nothing else, you're effectively doubling your, your pool of talent. Right. Yeah. And so on, on that note, another thing that I found interesting is they were they were interviewing um, for the film, the writer who let me pull up the writer's name before we before we get into his work. Uh, Smart Gregory decision Allen by Howard. him to change that up, dude, because that does like take a ton of the the weight away from what they right. were doing. So Gregory Allen Howard wrote this film and he grew up in the area. And if you look at his bio, this is by far the most popular work he's done. He worked on some other really small TV shows that came out in the early nineties that didn't get a lot of traction. And then he came out with this film and then he didn't really do a lot after this. It's kind of his big magnum opus. Yeah. Right. And it's based on, so he grew up in the area and he kind of found coach Boone, coach Yost and interviewed them and interviewed past players and came up with this story and this screenplay. One of the things that I found interesting about that when he did these interviews is that these players and coaches got along really well. Like so, immediately. Well, so Coach Boone was was hired, I believe, a year before the championship run. And even then, even before he was hired, he was around the program and had a relationship with Coach Yost. And so it's not as got, it's depicted in the movie where he he's effectively like injected into the program by force. And they're just like told like, hey, this is the head coach now to placate the the civil rights movement. Exactly. Well, and let me, let me take a step back from that. I'm not exactly sure the circumstances of, of when he was hired, how he was hired, but the idea that he was, like you said, injected into this program and then. And given a one game. Turmoil. That's the whole thing of this movie is that they're like, if you lose one game, right. You're fucking out. So he was I not just like instantly thrown into the fire like that. I no didn't life. get any, any sense that that was the case. Um, Another thing that I found to be interesting, there's a few more things. All of their games were blowouts. They won every game by more than one possession, including Which the state in, title game. But they won twenty seven to zero. Football, if you win by ten, that's an ass beating because no one scored any points. So another thing is that Boone, the coach, uh played by Denzel Washington, was not very well liked is kind of the underlying tone of the interviews that I've read and analysis that I've heard after these interviews is that he was one of those football coaches that, that if you played football for more than two or three years, everybody's had at least one coach that rides you way too hard, yep. is all about execution and has zero creativity within their scheme and is just a hard A for no reason. And that sounds like that was Coach Boone. And there definitely like- is a there is definitely a whole era of football where the idea was that it was just who was more disciplined than the other guy. Like it was just who was more hard nosed and there was no scheme, creativity, intellect to any of the exercise. Like when you read about guys like John Heisman, who is like the head coach of like the Georgia tech football team for many years and 
the famous the famous incident he took part in was the biggest blowout in college football history, two hundred twenty two right. to nothing over Cumberland College. I don't even think he believed in. I mean, he invented the forward pass, but I think they threw the ball like two times a game. Like he just did not even believe in like any kind of creative scheme of any kind. It was just like my guys are willing to die and yours aren't, so we'll win. And that's kind of the mentality that a lot of coaches tried to emulate. I think right. And and speaking of the execution portion of the team being such a big deal, the size of these athletes, or I should say these actors that were playing these athletes, those guys were huge in comparison yeah. to football back then. There wasn't there was not strength and conditioning programs the way there were today. If you ever if you had a if you go back and you go look at photos of your father, your grandfather, your great grandfather playing football in the in the 70s, 60s, 50s, 40s, whenever that might be, you'll notice that these football teams are comprised of men, boys that didn't go through these strength and conditioning programs that you see today. So they look like your average male, whereas in this movie, they're pretty jacked. And uh, I don't know, that just caught out to me as like, this team would easily win every single high school football game they ever play. If all they oh, ever yeah. did was run a dive down the middle. Well, and like even the... Like you look at the the size of NFL players in the seventies, and it's it's I mean high school football teams now could probably compete with many of the lower end NFL teams of the ni- early nineteen seventies. I mean these are barely professional players. Hot take, by the way. Yeah, I mean the the fact is like guys that played in the NFL in the early seventies, late sixties had other jobs. Like right. they couldn't you couldn't even play professional football unless you were a star star player as your primary career. Like my my grandpa sold tractors. His next door neighbor was John Madden, who is the Super Bowl winning coach of the Oakland Raiders. So, I mean, yeah, just a different. I'm not time saying you're wrong. I'm saying hot take. You know, it's, it is a little bit of a hot take, but yeah, certainly the the size difference is is huge. And I think they, you know, they couldn't malnourish these guys in order to make sure they looked on on part. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put myself in an awkward position, but I I have forgotten how to pronounce. Is it Gary Boudier, the the linebacker um, in this movie? Yeah, Boutier. So Gary Boutier's accident, that's a huge turning point in the, late in the film, happened after the season, not during it. And did so he really that, die in a, in a second car accident? Like they yeah. Yes, he, he did. Um, he had the accident after the season. He then um, became paralyzed from the waist down. And then he went and was in the Paralympics and won a gold medal in shot put. A few years later, maybe even a year later, it was very soon after he he died uh, in a head-on collision with a drunk driver. He died at the age of 27. So that is one of the more, I guess, real and obviously tragic aspects of the entire story, right? And as I was watching this movie, I couldn't help think they, they could have absolutely done this movie from Gary's perspective. They could have absolutely done it as him and... Um, like Rev or Julius... Yeah, yeah, Julius's perspective, like they could have been the two main characters as opposed to Boone and Yost, the coaches. They could have easily gone with those two players. So just an interesting bit of facts there. Essentially, this based on a true story is really in in real life. They were essentially a undefeated powerhouse that didn't have any more issues going on in their locker room or their school than maybe any other school in their district. And it's funny because you could probably go to most undefeated state champions throughout the U.S. in any given year. And if they, especially if they were located in a school district that has maybe socioeconomic differences, racial differences, you could just easily find that they didn't have 
issues in their locker room and then create a story about that. And that's essentially what sure. you have with Remember the Titans. Which, well, by the were... way, you have to give credit to the writer for that. The yep. writer created a lot of these side stories that, that basically frame the movie around. So, Which is great. And yeah, I am reading here that they were a the number two team in the nation in 1971. So they're the they second play. best high school football team in the entire United States. No, I, I agree. I think if I'm putting myself into the uh, the shoes of this writer, I mean, one, it sounds like he did a little bit of, you know, there's the, the other famous football movie that comes to mind is Friday Night Lights. And that is another story that took some very big liberties with its narrative in order to make the movie and story better. Obviously, the, the real story of Odessa Permian differed somewhat. The, the final game depicted in the film is not the state championship game, et cetera, et cetera. But I think what both authors try to do, just based on my gut feeling, is to encapsulate a lot of the feelings and issues and events of just that era and that culture that these teams existed in and pull them into the story of a single season and encapsulate those together. So certainly all that racial tension and stuff and turmoil didn't all take place in that one 1971 locker room, but certainly like Tidewater, Virginia in the late early seventies, late sixties, lagging behind much of the nation when it comes to desegregation. Those are issues that we were all as Americans dealing with and sports is really like our only true meritocracy. It's like where equality comes like first peered its head out from behind the shadow of prejudice and racism was like, even the most hardened racist racist want to win football games. And that's why like people like Bear Bryant were down to let black guys come play on his team. And so I think that this film does do a really good job of that. And that it's like, if you were trying to explain, and, and I'm kind of peering down this barrel myself as like someone that's like thinking about having kids like, how will I explain that to my kid? Like, this era that will seem so foreign to future generations now that we have come so much farther uh, in those areas. And, like, you, this is a good movie to show someone, to get them to understand just, like, that what we were dealing with at the time and how not just the macro-level issues, because it's easy to talk about, like, Martin Luther King and voting rights and, like, things that seem very large, but this brings it all very, very down local into just like daily life. And I think that's a really important piece of the story and, and the issues that it tackles. Absolutely. I, I couldn't have said it much better myself. And I believe one of the scenes that encapsulates that, I said that right, correct? Encapsulates. Correct. It seems weird. That seems weird coming through the mic. Um, it's like I've never said it before through the mic. <laughs> um, is the scene where sunshine takes um some of the black players into a bar you're gonna go grab a drink after the the game i guess which i guess they were allowed to or maybe they're gonna grab a food i don't really know no, the you can, they, they were allowed to, they were allowed to drink beer at 18 if they're all 18 they definitely can oh okay. my dad turned my dad turned 18 and could drink and then a year after he turned 18 and could he could drink for a year and then they moved it to 21 and he then had to wait two more years to then drink again so that was in the 80s anyways they go so they go into this bar you've got a white player you've got two black players and they go into the bar and they get kicked out and uh sunshine the white player it, you know he, he they leave the bar and he says he apologizes to his friends saying i had no idea and they were like yeah of course you don't you you weren't listening but i told you i think that that's a good kind of summary of the situation that we often talk about is the white guy listened but didn't hear and then yeah. you know his black friends explained to him like you you don't understand this and then he's like oh i now i understand he's like no you still probably don't yeah, understand probably it. not like, but yeah 
it's just it's, different uh, walking in different shoes man it's 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 hard to do in the film obviously tries to touch on that and uh i mean i i don't feel obviously equipped to, to talk about all those things but man it's uh they, they did a really good job with that especially that scene that was a good way to put it especially there, for the audience there are so many scenes uh in this movie and i've seen interesting uh takes on this film so there is a weird trope that many movies that tackle racial inequality have, which is you provide a white audience that's watching the film, a white character who is like cleansed of racism completely for them to exist through, who's like out there, like being a non-racist and fighting the good fight. And that way the white audience can say, oh no, that see, that's me. Like I'm that white guy. So like all these other racist white people that are in this film, those are other people, but I'm this guy. Remember the Titans, I think, does a good job in showing the vast majority of all the white characters go through some level of transformation or evolution in their thinking. Um, no one in the film that's white really shows up being like, it, even at, at best, like the best case for them is like Sunshine, who's just like kind of naive and unaware. But most of the white characters are from Virginia, and they at least begin the the movie with a kind of net negative attitude towards racial relations where they're just like, even if they don't outwardly hate black people, they think it's better off if we just all keep to ourselves. Kind of the, you know, tall fences make for good neighbors type attitude. Um, and slowly over the course of the film, we see them all kind of through what I think is a very common experience for many people who are racist, which is like, once you spend time with someone of whatever group you've decided you don't like, you realize like, oh, like they're not that different than I. And that can turn into a couple things. It can turn into like, oh, they're one of the good ones, which is what often happens. Um, but in this movie, they all come out the other side being like cleansed of their overall prejudice. And they they seem to be um, at least in favor of like fair play. Like there's the, the kind of penultimate scene where Yost uh, is told before the game, like, don't worry, we're going to get rid of this guy. You're going to get in the Hall of Fame and we're going to take care of this for you. And the refs are clearly like, throwing the game in favor of the opposing team and then Yost goes out there and basically like tells him to shove it he doesn't give a shit about the hall of fame like call the game fair i'm going to the papers and the titans ball out and they win the game and that's really his scene of like showing like what he's willing to give up in the name of equality which is a cool scene in my opinion yeah i i you you brought up a good point about sunshine he's i guess you could say he's one of the more he's one of the least racist characters to start yeah. the film, obviously. They they do a point to be like, well, he's from California. He's new in yep. town. He acts differently and he immediately gravitates towards, you know, all of his teammates and his is friends and friendly with everybody. Um, but then that scene kind of that scene with the bar kind of levels the playing field a little bit and does bring up the good point that just because you're tolerant doesn't mean you kind of understand everything that everybody's yeah. going through. Uh so just interesting to point that out. I, did, I, I think you brought up. I, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I do think that's really important in that it's like often I think people draw the line that like I won't participate in the prejudice. And that's obviously like the, a great place to start. But obviously like empathizing with the the plight of these people that are being oppressed is a big piece of the equation too. And so until the characters gain an understanding for what these guys are up against in their daily life, um, that's when they really like the final wall comes down and they become like, you know, they feel this true brotherhood and camaraderie with their teammates of a different race. Surprisingly deep film for its audience. 
it's kind of a family film, right? Kind of a little bit more geared towards, it could be geared towards a younger audience. And I was thinking about this because, you know, the nature of little to no cussing, um, maybe even no cussing. I can't quite remember. Oh, and this was a high, this is a movie they would show in a high school classroom, bro. This right. is like one they're wheel they're wheeling the TV in on the big black car oh, best and pop it in the VHS, bro. Oh man, when, when, the, when the teacher's out and the substitute, the your favorite substitute is is in the house, and you just know oh, yeah. you're not going to do anything all day. You know, um, it's either October Sky or Remember the Titans. Those are the bangers. Oh, absolutely. Um, this is off track because I feel like we started going down some different lanes that I wanted to discuss. We'll have to circle back. But one of the things I was thinking about with this film is I was trying to think of other great sports films. And I realized that, you know, when you're thinking about genre, you're also thinking about like your demographic, especially age. What age group are you trying to go towards as a writer? And I had a hard time thinking of any adult sports films. So the first one that came to mind that kind of teeters on that is Coach Carter. But I think Coach Carter is more of a young adult film. Yeah, we liked it when we were teenagers. That's when like me and my friend group saw it and loved it. I think Field of Dreams is pretty – it hits home for children and young people. But like older people certainly are very moved by Field of Dreams. I think especially older men who have like their fathers have passed on. That's a very powerful film for them. That's a good one. Um, Co- Coach Carter is a great one. Um, Miracle is a, I think everyone loves Miracle and it's like the go-to movie for like, you're a high school coach and you need to show a movie to your team movie, uh, on a, on a travel, like you're driving a bus to the middle of nowhere for a tournament. That's the movie you show. But, um, certainly because of when it came out, the people that lived through the actual event of that are much older. So like, that's clearly a very popular film with that right. generation. And they don't um, have any like kids to gravitate the attention toward. Cause like when I was a kid, um, the two daughters in the film, I kind of, I didn't view them as much as side characters as when I did watching it now, I think because they were my age and I was like, I I thought of them as bigger roles than they maybe were, you know? Yeah. But the other one that came to mind was, um, I started realizing a lot of dance movies have a lot of the same tropes as sports movies. Definitely Um, big competition. You're building up to kind of, right. Yeah. You know, the person that's new in town that joins the club or team yep. that people underestimate, uh, the coach that rides them too hard, but deep down loves them. You know, there's a lot of similarity between like a, a dance movie, like um, Step Up or Step Up, yeah. Bring It On or yeah. Right. Or um, yeah, just the, those those films kind of, again, they've kind of fallen more into a young adult category, but it's interesting because I started thinking about what makes a great sports film. And almost by the nature of what's included in a sports film, it it needs to reach a bigger audience because there's lessons that are baked into the sports experience that are really applicable to children about like perseverance. Well, and sports are for sports are fundamentally for young people. Like you yeah. can't you can't play sports when you're 60. I mean, you can, but you know what I mean? Like all movies that they're going to make clearly sports. not a golfer. Like Thank yours you. truly. You can wa- you can definitely watch Tin Cup and The Legend of Bagger Bands when you're 60 and have feel fun very... sitting on the couch while I'm going to be playing 18 holes. <laughs> very true, very true. But you know what I mean. Like team sport wise, um, the 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 sports that they make these huge like epic blockbuster movies about are the sports played by people between the ages of like 18 and 28, and that's kind of the prime for all these people. And so they're, they're geared towards people that are usually 
before that. You know what I mean? Because they that's all in front of you. And so you're like right. dreaming of this is my journey. I could be that guy someday. Um, whereas once you're like 40, like you could watch it and still you might love sports. I mean, I know I'll love sports until I'm you know dead, but you don't view it longingly anymore. You know, you don't dream that you might one day be on the field, etc. Well, speak for yourself. I expect to I, see you as long snapper for the Dallas I, Cowboys next year. Hey, I haven't clocked my 40 in a while, but it can't be that much higher than 5'3". So, <laughs> the dream lives on. Uh, so, it's funny because when I was watching this film, I was thinking to myself that the movie feels very cookie cutter. It feels very like it hits all the notes of like a typical act, like five-act structure. And it's just like okay i expect this to happen next and then i expect this to happen next and oh where's the love interest oh there she is or there he is and it's like but then i started taking a step back and i was thinking about what makes a great sports movie and sports movies have a lot of really distinct tropes which we just hit on which in a way make writing a sports movie kind of easy in the sense that you have so many nostalgic tropes that you can utilize yeah. That are expected and there's so many levers to, to incorporate them right yeah and when in, in your structure especially if you're like especially if you're an architect and not an artist and you and you outline things beforehand but then i started writing down like what makes a successful sports movie and one thing i realized and this goes back into when we talk about the wide audience is you really have to scratch a lot of itches to make a great sports film because if you're making like a rom-com not to dog on all rom-coms but using them as an example you really have to hit a few notes in terms of like okay there needs to be a love interest there needs to be some comedy there needs to be a falling out towards the middle of the film right but you really focus a lot on the the comedy side with a sports movie you have to have decent sports action right you have to have some sort of level of an underdog undercurrent as well as over overcoming some level of adversity throughout the season, which may be two or three adversities. You have to usually have some sort of an underlying love story. Not always, but it's very common. And you have to have different storylines for a coach, sometimes multiple coaches. And you also have to have storylines for one or more players to kind of bring back the whole, like the character within the, the team itself. You also have to have comedy most of the time. You can't really get away, like most, most, sports films have a level of comedy to them or at least comedic scenes. And then you have to build up the championship, the run to the title, right? Whether it's, whether it's a gold medal at the Olympics or a state championship, that's a lot to have to put on a writer. And especially in a film when you have that condensed, like to write a sports novel. And I don't see a lot of these, but if you wrote a fictional sports novel and you could play with 450 pages, it wouldn't be that hard to do this, but in a, film especially a film for families which is intended to be you know way under the two hour mark it is really hard to hit all of those notes and not let your pacing just run wild yeah it just it just to me when i was like revisiting this movie you have like i I don't know this off the top of my head i should pull it up but you have probably six or seven players that have legitimate storylines three or four of them have major storylines You've got two coaches who are essentially co-main characters. They've got daughters who have their own storylines. It adds up pretty quick. The amount of people that have to have established wants, needs, and then character growth that has a payoff at the end of the movie. 
that's a hard task for any writer. Yeah, and I to to not only put all that cram all that content in, but to hit kind of these keynote moments where the movie kind of stops and stands still. And remember, the Titans has some great ones. The the speech in the cemetery at Gettysburg, kind of like these moments in the huddle on the sidelines of these football games, where like kind of the whole movie kind of freezes around them, and it's just the team. And that's almost the framing device of the film is just these moments where it's just because that's kind of the the nature of the film's narrative. It's like the team versus the world. And so the moments where the film slows down are the moments where the team kind of turns inward and has an internal dialogue amongst each other in between Boone and the, the kids. And then they turn back out and the action picks up again. They're running and they're playing football. They're dealing with all this stuff. And then we'll go on for a while. We'll go back to like either a moment on the sideline or a moment like a training camp or something like that. So it is written beautifully. Um, Thinking about it as we've talked, I'm trying to decide if this movie would have been nearly as successful without Denzel Washington. I think he just turns in such a banger of a performance. There's, There's so many great iconic lines in this movie, like his whole like the number of feet in a mile thing where he's yelling at PD and he's like, you will crawl every damn one of those feet thing. I mean, like I've said, me and my buddies have quoted that a million times to each other. Like this is one of the great Denzel Washington vehicles. I don't know if it's not my favorite Denzel Washington movie, but it's up there. Yeah. It's probably my third favorite Denzel Washington movie, but what are the other two? Just out of curiosity, training day, man on fire. Those are both awesome awesome yeah training day is like really hard to overcome is his best work because it's so iconic like he won the oscar became the first black guy to win an an oscar for you know a leading role like it's it's monumentous historic achievement and he's just so badass (laughs) like shout out to ethan hawk too ethan hawk is low-key underrated he's he's not a slouch in that movie dude like he keeps up with him although alonzo's character is just crazy (laughs) like alonzo's character is just so nuts and the older i get when I watch that movie, I'm like, it's so mind bending that he's a cop. Like the whole time you're just like, this is a police officer. <laughs> like, how is he not dead or in jail? Like way before this movie starts, like, but man, the first, and I can't believe we're just getting off in the training day. We'll just do a training day episode at some point, but where they the get this part, that just becomes just, training, just day. training day. <laughs> but the part where they get in the very beginning where they get into his car and they're like, he's like, it's back at the office. And he's like, where's the office? And he's like, you in the office, baby going up and he hits the hydraulics on that old Cadillac and it starts playing ding 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 the old like is that, that, Dr. Is that King Kong ain't got nothing on me oh yeah the ending the 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 the, cul- the culmination they're of all that surrounding time. him in the cul-de-sac yeah. and oh okay you motherfuckers i'm putting cases on all you motherfuckers that's so dude, great dude. so it's... so yeah obviously okay. great film sorry we'll be back for training day because that, yeah. that's a incredible yeah, film do the commercial incredible. break uh, yeah but this is a but this is like a, a different kind of denzel washington vehicle um reading a little bit about what the guys that were uh in this said about him they said that denzel really focused on kind of the disciplinarian side of his character and that boone did have a warm side that they didn't really show in the film I really think he played it kind of perfectly. He becomes kind of just the archetype of all disciplinary football coaches, uh, which is kind of what you needed for this story. And this, this fictionalized version of this team was just like a rock on which they could all fall back on and lean on. And I think he just plays that so well. He comes across as just like so so rock solid. To me, one of the things that stuck out to him was when he was about to, whether it was deliver a speech or 
get on to a player or whatever it may be, there was this kind of pause at this moment where he was approaching the, the audience and was about to start. It was that great unpredictability that he had. Cause sometimes you didn't know if he was like truly mad or how mad he was. And every time that Denzel delivered a line in the movie, you didn't quite know exactly where he was going to go with it. Yeah. It wasn't easy to figure out if he, if he was going to blow up on a player or if he was going to be encouraging. And if so, how much he was going to blow up on that player. And that sort of unpredictability kind of created some of that. You could see whether it was like the player he was approaching or the coach he was approaching, you could see that level of tension. It was that unpredictability that I think brought that. He wasn't just angry for angry's sake the whole time. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. No, it was, it's an amazing performance. I also, I can't remember the actor's name. The guy that plays Yost does a really great job because he, I think he balances, he's kind of like the the connection between these two communities. He's kind of the go-between because like the white community is looking, looking to him for direction as far as like, you're the one that's been wronged here by this interloper. So how should, you know, if he, if he had been angry, then they would have followed suit, but he manages to like keep the professionalism. I also like that in the, and I think this is probably a fictional piece of the account that they made it so that Denzel's character, Coach Boone, initially refuses to take the job because it's not fair to Yost as like from a coach to coach perspective, right? Um, which really shows you the esteem that these guys hold football to, like. Beyond, they, it shows. It really does show, like the message of this movie that, like, this is beyond. It takes it above the the racial tensions that are simmering in this community. That, like, Yost is initially not going to coach, but then once his guys are like, okay, we're not going to play, and he's like, no, I can't let you guys give up your scholarships. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna just say, forget the Hall of Fame, whatever. I'm gonna be an assistant coach. And Boone, same thing. He's kind of like, I've seen what this means to the black community. I've got to coach this football team. Um, all those are really key narrative elements that I thought were just like kind of masterly interwoven right. into this plot that I thought gave it a lot of weight. It, it, it is a very emotional movie. Like even to this day, I've seen it a thousand times. I still really, it, it is, uh, it emotionally grips me. Like I, when, when they give that, when he gives that speech in the cemetery, um, about all the men that died on this field to secure our freedom and our, hold us together as a nation. Like I'm, I'm gripped by the emotion of that moment. It's incredible. You, you bring up an interesting point talking about the, the relationship between he and the other coach, uh, coach Yost. I couldn't help but think that from a structure standpoint, I was gonna, I was gonna bring this up as a kind of question I was going to pose to you. And that was who, who do you think the protagonist of the film is? I think screen time and the number of lines delivered, it's probably supposed to be Coach Boone. But I think the from a growth standpoint and from a character standpoint, Coach Yost is probably better suited to be the true protagonist of the film. And I'll tell you why I think that. First off, the jumping off point after Act 1 is the moment where Coach Yost has to decide whether he, whether or not he's going to stay and coach there. Because if he doesn't coach there, then Coach Boone doesn't have an assistant coach, loses all support of the of the white players, and then they go off, right? Mm-hmm. So Coach Yost is really the one who starts the journey by deciding he's going to stay there. He also has significantly more character growth than Coach Boone. Coach Boone kind of has, I feel like his character arc is a little bit more secured. He's more mature. He mm-hmm. has less learning to do. Coach Yost has significantly more learning to do, right? 
Definitely. Um, now, Coach Boone obviously needs to learn a little bit. Remember, he he had that scene where he received the plays that Coach Yost passed him at the dinner table, and Coach Boone is like, I don't need your plays, basically. So Coach yeah. Boone wasn't completely without character growth. but uh, And then Yost had the different sort of stake at play with his um, – his what do you call it the hall of fame that he had that he had hanging over him right yeah virginia state high school hall of fame so there's part of me that thinks that he's either the straight up the protagonist or he's at least the co-protagonist which i didn't initially think that when i watched the film you obviously gravitate towards denzel because of his performance and because of the number of lines he delivers and things of that nature but i think yost is probably right up there in terms of being the protagonist what say you? Yes, I can definitely – I definitely see where you're coming from with that. I definitely think – I think they're definitely both super key elements of the narrative overall. Like you cannot have this movie without Yost, and if Yost is just like a fly-on-the-wall character, it doesn't have nearly the weight. If Denzel Washington was not playing Boone, you probably would have seen a more equitable split of the like kind of protagonist role in this film. I think that – Denzel Washington at the gravity he brings as the level of star that he is and the charisma that he brings to that role is such that it was kind of going to be skewed that way. And then also, obviously, the way this movie is written, the the, the the not so subtle changes they made to the narrative to like make it more about like, you know, they're the first school to desegregate, like the black coach does become like the focus of all the ire of the community. And so He's under siege, both from a football perspective, from a community perspective. And so Yost becomes like a very useful ally and that like he's an unlikely ally. He's an unlikely source of support. He's someone that Boone can talk to about football and talk to about coaching this team and understanding this community that he may not have expected to be a source of that support. Um, but at the end of the day, like the, the narrative focuses on him because of that, that element of being like kind of the, the man on whom everything's, it all falls on his shoulders. Like whether they win or lose, how this team ends up doing, that will all fall to coach Boone and not to Yost in the end, because he's only the assistant coach, at least. Yeah. yeah. And I appreciate that perspective for sure. I think, I think you, you might be onto something there. Um, you know, we didn't really touch on this. I did want to take a quick aside or rather a, I guess a pretty big aside and talk about the, the directors and the producers. Do you know, who the, mm-hmm. do you know who produced this film without looking? No, I do not. Jerry Bruckheimer. This is a Bruckheimer vehicle, huh? Man, dude, how rich is that guy? I don't know if I want to know. Uh, I'm going to look it up. And, the oh man don't do me like that no i'm kidding you can you can tell us you can tell us um 275 million dollars a billion dollars oh my god well i guess (laughs) when you think about i mean think about all the like merch deals and things like that he probably i would imagine a large portion of that is like pirates of the caribbean and things like that even though i mean a lot of that rights probably retained with disney but He's, He's been got, on so many films. I just, I just read it myself silently, and it's it's pretty crazy. You want to read it off? He's got three of the top ten all-time ranked TV shows ever, as well as 
some of the highest grossing movies to ever touch it. I mean, some of his best known films include Flashdance, Top Gun, The Rock, Crimson Tide, Con Air, Armageddon, Enemy of the State, Black Hawk Down, Pearl Harbor, Beverly Hills Cop, Bad Boys, Pirates of the Caribbean, National Treasure. Those are franchises, obviously. And then on TV, he's done CSI, CSI Miami, CSI New York, CSI Those Cyber, Cash Trace, Cold Care, and the Ameri- and the Amazing Race, dude. Like that's oh. network TV, bro. That's like ABC money. Like that's like where you get a million bucks an episode type shit. That I mean, if, if you also, ask me, he's also the you ask me like and oh. majority owner of the Seattle Kraken, the NHL expansion franchise in Seattle. By so the he's way, a, he's a major league sports owner. Shouts out to the Kraken for having a sick like color scheme and logo and all that. Have you seen their pregame with the big CGI like artificial or uh, augmented reality Kraken that crawls down over the ice and like goes all over the crowd? It's so tight. That sounds awesome. Dude, it's so rad. The show. Yeah, Brookheimer's out here, dude. I mean, he made he he would have never had to do shit again after he did the '90s. Oh my god. He also made a gaming studio. He, he's helped co-produce work such as Fallout 3, Fallout New Vegas, The Elder Scrolls Skyrim. <laughs> Dude, oh this guy has literally just been like, anything that's ever been cool ever, you have to pay me for it. <laughs> I mean, he had, so he had like several top TV shows, several top movies, and then like arguably one of the best video games has come out in the last like 15 years. Probably, honestly, probably one of the the best video games ever. Like, yeah. To be to be fair, yeah. This is ridiculous. Hey, hey, His list is shouts dumb. out to Jerry Bruckheimer. Hey, but you know what? I, I know he, that Jerry also, Bruckheimer listens to this to this pod. But so he also out, did the Jerry. he also did the Lone Ranger and Gemini Man. So we all have our misses. Yeah, he did. Uh, what was the other one I saw? Oh, he was part of Prince of Persia: Sands of Time. Ooh. Not a great one, my dude. Not, I mean, frankly, since since like 2007, he hasn't been doing a. uh, So here's 2007 on, or 2000, anything after 2007. Confessions of a Shopaholic, G Force, Prince of Persia, Santa. Hey, hey, shouts out to uh, Isla Fisher, though. Okay, fair. Uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, The Lone Ranger, Deliver Us from Evil, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. Okay, wait, 12 strong. That's a slapper. I'll give him credit on that. That shit was a slappy slap. Gemini Man, Bad Boys for Life, which is like a cheap cash grab, which I, I enjoyed, but come on. And then top 2022, Top Gun Maverick. I was about to ask you if you've seen Top Gun, but then you said 2022. Uh, yeah, they pushed I don't, that. I don't know how I feel about that one coming out, but uh, also I have to say Prince of Persia came out in 2010. That's like after when it was like, really socially acceptable to whitewash the hell out of everything you make bro that's crazy and, that 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 got that has been slipped under the rug because it's only because it was so bad like if it was like well more well known that that existed jake gyllenhaal wouldn't have a career okay first of all i guess i have to say shout out to jake gyllenhaal because he's he's the man but he has no business playing in that role and then ben kingsley like low-key has had several roles as as races that he is clearly not Oh, dude, they give him like a a pretty okay spray tan and have him put on a bad accent, and he is literally anything. They have him playing Swahili's straight Asian people. He played Gandhi, right? He did play Gandhi, dude. They had this man play Gandhi. They acted like there was like not a, you know, roughly half a billion people that could have. How about one point three billion, dude? 
like I, I cut it. I, I I try to cut it in half, but yes, your point stands. For, like, yeah, because I mean, even I, I feel like even an Indian woman is closer <laughs> to Gandhi than Ben Kingsley. Yeah. At least you got half the equation there. <laughs> That's wild, bro. That is truly wild. I mean, um, the the goat. If you ever want the goat of that kind of film, go watch Genghis Khan, the John Wayne movie with John Wayne playing Genghis Khan, and it's literally no, John I, Wayne I, doing the John Wayne voice, but saying lines about Genghis Khan. So he's just like, "Oh, hello, Tartar. I see you have my wife with you." the leader of the hill folk it's so great it's incredible and it's, everyone that was on that movie died of cancer because they shipped in irradiated soil from a nuclear testing site for to get the right color on screen so great film boys uh shouts out to that set director and then also um what i mean I, i'm literally getting vibes of brad pitt and uh inglorious bastard saying bongiorno oh but yeah like in real life in real life Oh, holy shit. Bruckheimer's also doing a show right now called Young Rock, which is like a show about The Rock being a young child. It's like the life story of The Rock as a sitcom. Oh. Okay. <laughs> this is amazing. Okay, so director, I'm going to butcher this name, but I'm going to try to say it. Uh, Boaz y- y- Yakin. They, they have a pronunciation uh, tidbit on on wikipedia but it's in hebrew so it does me no good okay so he's like he's like an israeli uh right he has some pretty good movies i want to point out more than anything he did write prince of persia sands of time so that's pretty rough but he wrote now you see me which is really good i i i fuck with that and he was the executive producer of that as well it looks like he also like not that this is cool but the fact that this guy wrote the story from from dust till dawn to texas blood money is incredible like the fact that he went from that literally a year after writing the script for from dusk till dawn to texas blood money he wrote remember the titans he directed remember the titans like what a what a 12 month period of time that was for that man dude it was 1999 he was wearing wraparound oakley's okay so let me let me throw something at you what do you think a good Remember the Titans comp is? Because I've got a movie in mind that comes out 10 years later that's nothing like Remember the Titans, but at the same time, it's like an inspirational sports film. Don't look mm. it up. I want, I want, because I have some. No, I'm, I'm just trying to think. I'm just trying to think of a, a good. Hmm. What's that basketball movie where, like, it's the first all black starting lineup? Road to Glory. Like Road to Glory. Glory. That's what I'm thinking of. That's not what I was thinking of, but uh, but what I was thinking of, I'll, I guess I'll go ahead and tell you. Um, the Blind Side. Oh, yeah. I totally let forgot me, about that. Let me that. throw something at you real quick. Dude, another don't, movie where like... Don't the, look at... The, hey, the, hey, don't, the, don't the look it up. The feel-goodness of that movie is just like so heightened for the film, and in real life, I'm just like, these rich-ass... Long John Silver zoning white people adopt this clear NFL prospect and just like pimp him out for money. I don't know how I feel about all that. Dog. Yeah, I'm not going to touch that with a 10 foot pole, but I have no idea of these people. But I, I let, let me throw something at you about uh, budgets and box office and things of that nature. The Remember the Titans has a budget of $30 million. Okay, don't look this up. The budget for the blind side was twenty nine million, so just one million dollar less. Same ballpark. What do you think the box office numbers of these two films were? 
So again, they're both around $30 million. I know what member the Titans made. Uh, remember the Titans made like 130-ish? Mm-hmm. The Blind Side came out at a totally different era of films. When The same budget. Made, same budget, but like marketing and everything was just way different. I'm going to say The Blind Side made like $250 million. 309. Wow. Good yeah. for them, dude. Let me ask you uh, another question. So you've got these two football movies that largely kind of revolve around race relations, Blindside also a little bit like socioeconomic relations. The the Blindside does, I mean, obviously you have to deal with inflation, but roughly twice as good as, or twice as well as Remember the Titans. Why do you think it is that Remember the Titans is more revered? Because in my opinion, like the Blindside, we kind of forgot about it, but I feel like Remember the Titans is very well remembered. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it deals with uh, a much larger, more important issue, right? Like, it tackles something so big compared to some of these other films. It's got a much bigger star as its lead character, and it's remembered as one of his best movies. So no one's no one's like, uh, who's the chick in The Blind Side? Sandra Bullock. No one's like, what's your favorite Sandra Bullock movie? But people are like, what's your favorite Denzel Washington movie? Well, nobody asked that because everybody's answer is miscongeniality. Fair, fair point, fair point. Uh, Tim McGraw, guy loves his uh, roles as like a father in a football film. Yep. That that scene where he just wraps up his son's hands in duct tape in Friday Night Lights is iconic. I feel like we, I feel like we bring that up in personal conversations like once a month, as just like our go to reference of like expecting more out of players that we root for. Oh yeah, go tape his hands. Go tape, go tape the ball. Yeah, the Blind Side. I just never really liked that movie that much. I didn't love. I just didn't like was that. It, movie. Was it uncomfortable for you? It was a little uncomfortable for me. I don't like the dynamic exp- shown in that film. I don't think it's that heartwarming. Really, it's one thing if you adopt a kid when they're five and they turn out to go to the NFL. It's a very different thing for me if they're like eighteen months from going to the NFL and you've like effectively buy a lottery ticket that seems weird to me strange it's also a sad story kind of because his career ended up being really kind of sad um the guy the real yeah he he got a ton of injuries he was kind of declared a draft bust dealt with a ton of head injury issues Mm. uh he's now he's now an advocate for uh the use of marijuana to treat pain instead of addictive painkillers which is i think a positive thing overall but Obviously, he was like a super huge star, you know, top 10 draft pick guy. And um, yeah, didn't love it. Remember, the Titans is kind of purely good for me, which I I enjoy. Yeah. So one thing that we've kind of failed to do is go over this this movie. Remember, the Titans chronologically. Um, But we kind of went over it in bits, obviously, starting with the initial lack of acceptance from the different players. And then as they get into their their season they begin to accept each other especially with the the summer camp um which by the way speaking the summer of chrono- camp- speaking of chronologically just before you go on i whenever we, i think about this movie there was a time at the very beginning of memes coming up there was this meme where people described movies backwards and one of my favorite ones was remember the titans because they were like remember the titans is the the story of a coach a championship winning coach who divides a team along racial lines and then moves out of town <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was really funny. <laughs> That's but anyway, one way continue. To look at it. 
And, yeah, uh, <laughs> if you play it backwards, it's great. Uh, oh man, I wish I was quick witted enough to make a, a a reference to a current coach we think is doing that. Never mind. That seems like something a Bart Bryles would do. Yeah. Okay. We'll throw Art Bryles under the bus because we. Yeah. So Art <laughs> Bryles did. Baylor sure as shit did. So yeah, we, we, yeah, but we don't know. Hey, we're not, we're not accusing them of anything legally. I mean, we're not obviously, uh, we're this not legal not experts. Advice, so this is not financial advice, but, um, yeah, where there's smoke, there's fire, I guess. Um, one thing that I was, I was looking at the chronological events of this movie and the movie starts with a funeral, but you don't know whose funeral it is. Mm-hmm. I actually like that, that twist generally but one thing that was interesting about this film is you don't know whose funeral it is obviously but then you immediately see in the front row of the people walking towards the funeral it's includes like a lot of the main characters so if you had watched the i mean denzel's included in that right and so is the the other main co- uh coach ghost who's the actor's name is escaping me but it's like but you know it's a player right and it just feels like it gets lost in the shuffle that they did that, right? It doesn't feel as yeah. impactful as other movies that start out like that, like Saving Private Ryan's, and as one where like it starts out with like him visiting the because you're unaware of who commentary. the character we're seeing at the beginning of the movie is. You think it might be Tom Hanks, right? I guess it's done so quickly, and then and it, it just feels like you forget it for like over an hour. You know, it's an odd framing device generally because it doesn't really seem like this is the story of Bertier's life. Like, Right, right, which is exactly. which is what which is what the funeral as the bookend would be kind of normally a funeral showing a funeral and revealing it's his funeral at the end would be like I bet you're wondering how I got here. Let me show you life like, like big fish precisely. So yeah, an odd choice. I don't think it detracts that much from the movie, but it is an odd choice as far as the because it doesn't seem Bertier didn't die during the film, so it's not like some kind of uniting incident among all the players i don't know but all right so you just remind me of something when you talk about um you about bertier and i'm sure we're butchering his name but bertier is in the hospital room he's yeah watching all of their playoff games that he missed and i absolutely have to figure out if that's historically accurate in terms of like because i because they're in the they're in the 70s right and he's 71, watching dude 71 they're watch- he's watching local high school football games on a television. Feels- I, I always assumed in those scenes that what he was watching was effectively the game film. They had the ability to watch game film in the 70s. I assume someone brought like a reel-to-reel to the hospital and hooked it up. But yeah, there's no way they were broadcasting live local high school football. That's not true. <laughs> like, Yeah, apparently it happened in like the 90s, first televised high school football game, which I don't know if that's accurate, but... I mean, I I know that like the major networks didn't start showing like nationally televised high school football until the late 2000s. That was in the in the age of kind of the like who's the number one team in the nation was like kind of like honestly the South Lake era, like the 04 to 06 era was when really that whole like we're gonna you know we're gonna go play Miami, we're gonna go play De La Salle, we're gonna go play Modern Day until that began to happen. People, you know, other than the people in the town, no one will watch that. And some podunk t- town in West in Tidewater, Virginia, didn't have the infrastructure to do a live television right. broadcast. I think that was my main thought. Is if I think this movie took place in the in like Los Angeles or wherever, sure. I, I would probably play like, at the Rose okay, Bowl. Sure, right, right. And it wasn't even like the state finals. He started tuning in. It was like the 
third to it was like the quarterfinals or something and so i was like i don't know about oh that, dude but. he had the he had a local virginia 3a football ticket where you get every game of 3a virginia state football <laughs> he had espn the eight the ocho bro show me you, I, I would be i would be really shocked if you could watch and this is texas i'm talking about if you could watch any 3a game of football in the state of texas right now with a thousand channels i'd be kind of shocked Maybe somebody's live streaming it on Twitch or something from their yeah oh yeah from their Motorola sure. Razor, but other but than that. like on but if, if I'm flipping through ESPN, I'm very unlikely to be like Levelin versus Muleshoe and Tenaha like, defeat White House. I feel like there's so much that we've kind of glossed over that I was prepared to talk about on this uh, on this pod. One more thing that I wanted to talk about, which is kind of escaping me. Oh, so here's one thing I want to talk about. A lot of like relatively famous actors that played very small roles in this film. Oh, and even not dude, like Avon Barksdale from the wire is Julius in this movie, which is huge. I'm trying to find his profile, but I know, I know you're talking about, uh, Julie. I'm trying to, yeah, it's his, his profile's not listed on, on his uh, name's Wood, his, the actor's name is Wood Harris. Okay. He's been in a, ton you of have, stuff. Uh, he's, he's an awesome actor, but he was in Creed. He was in Blade Runner 2049. Donald Faison. I, I imagine Donald Faison's in there. Yeah, there's a yeah. ton of great. Ryan Gosling, who kind of plays an interesting character where he's pretty much just like, he just kind of I hangs out in the background and it's funny. Ryan Gosling, dude. I always forget that's him. He's married to Eva Indes. Nice. Kate Bosworth hangs out in the background for a little bit. She's she's more racist than her boyfriend. But yeah, it is a it is definitely a cast like stocked with people that would go on to have much bigger careers than the right. ones that you see here. It's very interesting. But it's a great I mean, it's a great movie. It's a great movie. And right. It's definitely I know I've said I think I've said this about every movie that we've done so far, but it's definitely a movie I'm gonna show my kids, dude. It's like this is one of those movies. It's like this is I'm not gonna put it on any list of like ten best pieces of cinema, but like definitely one of like I would probably it's probably in the, the ten movies I've watched the most times. Yeah, it's it's entertaining and it has a legitimately important message that it does a good job of ex of getting across without being super heavy handed. And it does that through what I would consider to be going back to the writing perspective, realistic interactions and realistic character growth yep. over a long period of time. Right. Definitely. Very human. It's, it's an incredibly human film with very real organic interaction and real character arcs that mirror kind of real human evolution of how people's perspectives change through interactions with other human beings. There aren't like the movie I always point to is like the most inaccurate depiction of how people change is like the movie Crash, which somehow won an Oscar when it came out. But it's filled with just these like completely insane depictions of racism and like people overcoming racism via crazy epiphany based on like individual moments in their life. Like they, they're about to get hit by a bus and a black guy tackles them out of the way. And they therefore promise never to be racist again because of that incident. That's not how human beings operate. It's, you know, in this film, it's things like Bertier's mother, like slowly learning through a hundred tiny interactions and viewing right. Julius over and over again to be a quality person that she learns that like, this boogeyman that I've attached to this whole group of people is not real. And that, you know, this, this young man shows me that they are, he, you know, he is a good man. And therefore my ideas about all of them could be wrong. And that's a really important thing to show. 
Yeah, absolutely. Scale of one to 10, as far as sports movies are concerned. Let's Bro, hear this it. is a straight 10, dude. Like, I can't even front. This is a 10. My, my younger self will not allow me to give it anything less. This is just like, it's. this is one of those movies for me. This is a 10. Man, I, I definitely appreciate that. And if this isn't a 10, then no sports movies are 10s. Like sports movies don't come in 10s. If remember the Titans is not a 10. I'm going to say, okay, so I, I, I'm going to preface this by saying that I'm almost never give anything a 10 because I think that 10 is reserved for like literally a perfect film. And I don't think this is a perfect film. It's got some weirdly campy lines, weirdly campy moments line where, uh, Jerry, Bertier, always say his name wrong. I've probably said it wrong 20 different times in the movie. The now that I think about it, it's definitely Bertier. We, Bertier. Been, yeah, it's Bertier. Okay. Apologize to everybody who knows the Bertiers. Eh, eh, hey, we're not the ones with the weird French last name. You are, pal, so deal with it. <laughs> so when when he, what does he do? He makes a tackle against one of the racist teams, and he, like, points yeah. at the coach. Like, that alone docks at point two. Like that's such a bad moment in the film. <laughs> I, you know, I, gonna... I love that shit, dude. Whatever. And okay, so like campiness for a family film, I can understand, but there's just there's enough of it for me to dock it. And then of course, like if you wanted to get into the situational football and the intelligence of the football staff. <laughs> oh man, only you, dude. Only you were gonna be like, they're out here running a cover two against a beer. Are you joking me? Yeah. Boone? Hey. Cover at least hey, at least the cover two's got the sidelines covered, but they're not doing that. Like they're out here rub yeah, I'm not even gonna get into that. They're out there. Okay, let, let, let me let me take a step back. We're about to close the episode, but I gotta I gotta bring the up one point. Was prehistoric in 1971, dude. People had just figured out you could throw the football. Give cut them a little slack. I love your you're just completely diminishing every single football accomplishment that happened before we were born, essentially. Like, no, dude, Roger Staubach would not have survived Texas A5. Bro, Texas if five Tony, dude, if, if you put Ezekiel Elliott in football in any level in 1969, he would have played two games where they burned him as a witch at the stake for being a fucking alien because they wouldn't have even known what to do with him. Look at Wilt Chamberlain. Will Chamberlain's a normal NBA player now. He was putting Ooh. up a, a, a hundred on people, dude. Ooh, because everyone was playing against was a little tiny dude. We got the best drugs. We got the best training. We've been selectively breeding for athletics for generations upon generations. It is what it is. Deal with it. Man, wait till we start editing that. jeans, baby. Wait till them. Wait till CRISPR catches up, and my kids are six foot nine and can jump sixty inches in the air because I paid enough that, money. That Wilt take is super hot. I don't know about that. Dude was dude was six eleven and could bench like five hundred pounds. Dude, you need to go watch some Wilt footage. I, dude, I'm not saying Wilt's that. bad. I'm just saying that like Wilt Chamberlain. If you put Wilt Chamberlain in the NBA right now, he's not putting up a hundred points on people. That only well, happens yeah. because of the level hey, of competition. That, yeah, but he's, but he's, I mean, but he's probably like, he's like Giannis. Like, literally, if you want to know what Wilt would do in the NBA today, we'll just watch Giannis. That's basically the equivalent. And Giannis has won, yeah. but Giannis what, two MVPs in a, in a, but he's not putting up a hundred points on people, dude. A hundred points. 
Think about putting up a hundred points in an NBA game as a as a center. Again, That's, I don't I don't I don't disagree with you, but the only way that works is if everyone you're playing against is a sixth grader. That's literally you, the only way it happens. Okay. So here's no 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 no. I'm, this is not straw manning because you put this this out there. You said he was an average NBA player today. Okay, I I, I misspoke there. He's not an average NBA player. He's a he would be a very good NBA player. He was simply playing against guys that would never sniff an NBA roster ever in the history of time. He was playing against guys who would be lucky to play Division II basketball in the modern era. Still a hot take, but I I, I accept your walk back, your very gracious walk back there. Yes, please um, please allow me my gracious walk back. The, the what I had to say about the football element before we we kind of start to wrap up the show is. They kept switching players on offense and defense throughout the film for like a plot element or for like a oh, character yeah. growth element. They'd be and like, that's dude, not you how play, football you works. Play line, you could play linebacker, bro. <laughs> was it? Uh, it was. Uh, they have just Petey the name. running. They have Petey the running back just switch to corner. Yeah, in the middle of, of, of like a tight game, he's just like, I can't cover that guy, and he's like, and the coach is just like. I believe in you. And then he goes out and like jumps a route and swats it out of the air, which is just, no, no, it's not like, I understand that football is probably a little more simple back then in terms of scheme, but like, no, I don't accept that as from a writing. Again, this is a writing. This is a writing podcast. This is not a sports podcast, but you, there, the la- okay. there was a this lack was of realism. 3A Virginia football. Just saying, if you were a good athlete, you could probably play offense, defense, special teams, be the principal of the school, maybe superintendent. They'd probably make you prom king and designated hitter on the baseball team just for showing up. Just saying, they had like 46 kids in this school. So that that's yeah, I accept that. I guess what I'm what I'm thinking. You of and I is- have both known people when we were at tech, we both knew people that were from like BFE who were the captain of everything because there was they had nine athletes at their school and they played every sport. So I, I guess what I'm getting at is there, there are other sports movies that depict the sport more accurately. And I have, Oh yeah. I, Any given Sunday, I would bro. be remiss the if I didn't. From a, I think part of the writer's job is to like put plot twists and scenes in there that are accurate to the sport. And I do think that was a weakness of the script is, is that's fair. Acting like you can just put, you can just have like an issue on the game, and every single time they had an issue in the game, they just grabbed a player off the bench and is like, "You're a safety now," or like, like there was one scene where like the quarterback was like the quarterback's uh, sunshine, who had like a rocket arm, was like, "You can't put me in that game. I can't make that pitch." Like of a pitch, you're scared about making a pitch when you have like you can throw it sixty. 60 yards on a on a rope well, he, he like, went he went on to be a, the, the starting quarterback for the university of south carolina so i think he could probably make a pitch as a d1 qb so the uh i have to talk points what, that what football movies what football movies do you think depict the sport of football well because i think any i think any given sunday has yeah pretty decent gonna, that, football. that was the one that first thing that came to mind any i like that. I love the chaos of the game that they depict really well um, low key, and it's it's crazy, but uh, longest yard is pretty fun. Here's what I think the most realistic sport, like a uh, football movie, is. And they don't they don't show a lot of scenes of the live game, but if you go back and watch the scene where in Invincible, where they go oh, yeah. play the Dallas yeah. Cowboys, yeah, and it's like that kind of bright lights, 
you see the star, you see Tom Landry on the sideline, you see Stallback, and you're kind of it's that they do a good job with the um the lighting and the pacing to kind of like it's a Definitely. surreal moment, like I'm really here. And then the moment the ball snaps, it's just so fast. And it's first, I guess I think it's a punt or maybe a kickoff he fields. It's just like everything yeah. is moving so quick and he just gets killed his first hit. Yeah. That's the most like that's the most realistic football scene in any movie I've ever seen. I think you I think you're you're dead on with that. That's I hadn't thought about that one in a while because I loathe the Philadelphia Eagles and I refuse to accept that, that well, movie exists. Yeah, I mean look, it's like Rudy. I hate it. So Yeah, we, we won't get into, you know, the Philadelphia Eagles and morality on this podcast, but you know it's just they're, it's just, they're two and five and they're bad as of this recording. Mm, mm. Well, hey, you know what? When you've got the fourth best quarterback in your division and you're gonna and, and you're never gonna hand it off to your running back, it's a recipe for magic. That's a recipe for magic. Ugh. All right, man, All right, well, so do you have said, any final said, thoughts before we uh get out of here? Yeah, before we go off on a tangent on NFL. Uh nine out of ten. Nice. Very solid. I mean, obviously, look, it hits like I said, it's very That's hard a respectable to respectable score. It's very hard to do a sports film that hits on every single note that is required of a sports film, especially one that incorporates all of the different audiences. I, I, I do dock it a little bit, like I said, for realism, because when you're doing a movie that's based on a real story, you basically completely trash the real story and make up your own story. I do give the writing credence for that because that's very difficult, but I wish there was a little bit more realism in it, both from the story and from obviously the way that they wrote the games. Um, sure. So for that reason, I can't give it a perfect sport score. Um, nine out of 10 phenomenal movie. Like you said, it's one to show your kids and it's, it's great. It's top three sports movie of all time. Love it. Thank you all for watching. We appreciate you all um, like and subscribe and comment below. Uh, if you agree, disagree, we'd love to hear your thoughts. And as always, again, we appreciate you all. Um, thanks for joining. And until next time, peace. Peace.